It's Wednesday, July 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers, from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Gentlemen, earnings palooza continues. Whoa, whoa. Are you ready? We've got Caterpillar, Ford, Eli Lilly, Panera, Netflix, but we are going to start with Apple. And for the first time in a long time, <laughs> Apple missed on earnings. Shares down about 5% this morning. Joe Mager, since you were on Nightly Business Report, the most watched business show in America last night, talking about Apple, I turn to you first. What is the story here? So the story is that they missed pretty badly on the iPhone. And the iPhone is the highest margin product at Apple, and so that's what ultimately hit them. But I think when you look past that, there are a couple <clears throat> worrying signs kind of under the hood. You know, one is falling average selling prices. The iPad price has fallen about 18% on average over the last year. That is a pretty meaningful haircut. Now, I know a lot of Apple bulls want to say, well, that's because they started selling the iPad 2 at a lower price point. Well, no, that doesn't make it any better. They're still selling iPads at a lower price point. And I think ultimately, you're going to see a continuation of this trend, and that's going to be hurting margins. And I think that is the real long-term story here, not focusing on the top line. Charlie, what do you think? The whole missed expectations thing really drives me crazy in general because usually people blame the company for being wrong when it's actually the analysts who are wrong. And if you look at you know Apple's actual numbers, I agree with Joe on the selling prices, but they sold 26 million iPhones compared to 20 million last year. That's 28% growth. Sounds pretty good to me. Yep. Uh, when you look at iPads, they sold 17 million this quarter instead of 9 million a year ago. 84% growth also looks pretty good to me. I can see Joe's points about the selling prices coming down. That does affect their margins. Uh, but all in all, in that you look at their uh, Q3 guidance, revenue up 20%. I don't see what the problem is here. Joe, what, what's the problem? Okay, so I know everyone wants to say that what happened here was there was an iPhone miss because people were waiting for the iPhone 5 to roll out. And that's true to some extent. You know, Mac, our producer, was talking about how he's holding out. But I think for a lot of people, it's just that they're finding good phones elsewhere. And the new Samsung phone has been a, a big hit. Uh, it's got great reviews. And when you can buy a faster, superior phone from someone else, it's tough to get excited about waiting for the iPhone. And you know, I know a lot of Apple Bulls are really on that point, and there's something to that, but I think it's time we just start acknowledging that the quality gap between the iPhone and competing offerings is really, really narrowed to a razor-thin point. Jason? I couldn't wait, so I actually went out and bought an iPhone uh, just a few weeks back. Charlie was welcoming me into the uh, into this decade, into this decade <laughs> which I thought was, was quite nice. It replaced my dinosaur, but you know, I do think that a couple of things concern me. I don't know how many more iterations of the iPhone they can continue to roll out where this pent-up demand argument is going to continue to work. Yep. Uh, and then the other thing is with iPads, the iPad replacement cycle, I think it's going to be significantly uh, – there's going to be significantly more time in, in, in between uh, upgrades of, of the iPad cycle as well. So they're going to need to start thinking about what's going to be next. I know we heard things about the iTV out there, and then the latest uh, I've heard is the smaller tablet, which to me – that's Apple trying to play down to more of an Amazon and Google market, which ultimately I think would crimp Apple's margins and hurt profitability anyway. So, yeah, I think that Apple's doing well right now. I'm not really too terribly concerned about the expectations game, but really for me, I'm trying to figure out what in the world Apple's going to do here over the next 10 years to, to really wow us. It seems like uh, the pressure, if nothing else, this, the results of this quarter sort of ramp up the pressure on the iPhone 5 to be an even bigger hit. It seems like uh, 
that needs to really be the blowout that we've seen in the past when Apple has rolled out other phones. Charlie, I'm wondering when you look at the the universe to to the point that Joe was making, uh, the universe of phone options out there, it really does seem like uh, Samsung and you know to an extent Google with the Android system are are really posing legitimate threats at least when it comes to just phones. I realize tablets are a separate category because it seems like the iPad is is the clear winner there, but it seems like Samsung, Google, Android. That's that's becoming a closer horse race. They have massive carrier support. You know, I watch Hulu all the time, and I would I would bet one out of every ten ads is Verizon hawking an Android handset. Uh, and they, Android already has the market share lead. And I agree with Joe's point earlier that these are such high quality devices. They're going to put uh, significant margin pressure on Apple to keep innovating. Uh, that said, I'm not worried about Apple until uh, they roll out a new product and the reviews are horrible and the sales volumes fall off. I think until that happens, they're in good shape. What do you think of the stock now? Where we, We've heard people say, even at $600 a share, wherever it's been in the past, this is still a not an outrageously expensive stock. It's it's still a value play. The shares are off slightly today. Only five percent. That's uh, nothing. Only, <laughs> yeah, only five percent. Only mean, about thirty billion dollars. Well, that's the thing when you get to a company of that size. But uh, what do you think of the valuation of the stock right now? Well, they do have a hundred billion in cash, which is very notable, and their multiple of earnings isn't actually that high. I think it's probably in the low teens, uh, and. It all comes down to can they sustain their earnings. Uh, If their earnings get cut in half, all of a sudden that multiple blows out. Uh, I actually think it's a fairly decent buy at this price. Jason? Yeah, Apple was one of the final four uh, on the list of stocks that my daughters are going to be adding to their portfolio this quarter. And the one concern that we all had with it is that at the price it is today in the market cap, you have to kind of look at it as, is it entering this this period where it's going to be more of just the status quo? I don't know how much growth, really, we can see from Apple, yep. unless they you know continue to innovate uh, you know new products that change our lives in, in all sorts of ways. I don't know what's going to happen there, but that, that is the concern, is how much room for growth really is there. Joe? Yeah, I'm not a fan. Consumer hardware prices are kind of like gravity. You, know, you can defy it for a while, but ultimately, it's going to bring you down. And I think Apple <laughs> is going to have to face that reality of falling margins. And we're already starting to see the early signs of that and just keep watching it unfold in the next couple of years. Caterpillar uh, did well this morning. Crushed expectations. Profits for the quarter up 67%. Uh, Joe, the stock is is basically flat. It was it was up slightly uh, when I checked it right before walking in the, uh, into the studio. Uh, this is one of those big Dow stocks uh, that, uh, uh, for perfectly valid reasons, gets a lot of weight. Uh, what do you think when you look at Caterpillar? Well, I think it's a great business, very well run operationally, great brand, great global distribution. And, you know, in their case, it's a very forward looking business. If you're ordering equipment from Caterpillar, that means that you have a big long term project that you yourself want to work on. So when you see strong results coming from them and good guidance, that's definitely a good sign for not just, say, this quarter for the economy, but one several ones out and a couple years out. This is one of those bellwether stocks that gets talked about, but it's not the only one. Um, Boeing uh, had better than expected earnings. Boeing raised their guidance. Uh, But on the flip side, you had UPS, which cut its full-year forecast um, and basically said the U.S. economy is going to grow about 1% for the rest of the year. And so, for for people out there who are either watching CNBC or listening to us or or, looking online, how do you guys 
balance out the bellwethers? Is there one that you give more weight to than the other? Because it, it really, I mean, just as an average investor, this can get a little confusing. I kind of want like someone just to rank order them and be like, no, no, no here, here are the bellwethers that matter the most. Uh, Joe, I'll just start with you. What do you think when you when you weigh a Caterpillar against like a UPS or a Boeing? You know, I think a FedEx or a UPS are great examples of uh, tracking what's happening in the market right now and what's happening over the next quarter or two, just because they really do have their you know finger on the pulse of what's going on. But I think Caterpillar is a good example of one that's a longer weeding indicator than those. Jason, yeah, definitely. Thing? I mean, it. it uh, you have companies like FedEx and UPS that are very much in real time telling us how the, how consumers are behaving at this point in time. And because we have an economy that's so consumer-driven, they're great companies to look at to see w- what the behavior is, how people are spending, if, if you know spending is in fact happening. Uh, because Joy Global, Caterpillar, companies like that require a lot more forward-thinking to place orders for those capital-intensive types of businesses. Charlie? I'm far more interested in what CEOs are saying about the state of their business and the economy than listening to economists on TV or even government data. Or podcasters. Or podcasters. <laughs> uh, my two favorites for looking at the consumer would be Walmart and American Express uh, because Amex hits the upper-end consumer. They'll tell you a lot about their spending patterns and how much uh, money they're spending, how confident they feel. And you know when Walmart in contrast, says things like their monthly sales are centered around when uh, government support like food stamps get paid out, that kind of stuff. It's also very informative. Ford's second quarter earnings fell 57%, thanks in no small part to the economic slowdown in Europe. Shares down slightly this morning. Jason Moser? Well, on the bright side, <laughs> uh, it was their 12th consecutive quarterly pre-tax profit, so that's good. Uh, Fitch and Moody's upgraded their credit rating to investment grade, so that's good. But you keyed in on really the big problem. It was international and specific. It's uh, South America and Europe is really causing problems. Activity in South America is relatively flat. Europe, they're losing money. And Alan Mulally, earlier on the call today, acknowledged that this is a structural problem, not a cyclical one. And that's essentially CEO talk for saying, guys, we're going to be shutting some of these factories down. And they're having a little bit of trouble really pulling that off because of labor unions and agreements in Europe at, the po- at this point. But but that's something that's going to happen. I think it needs to happen. And uh, it's a little bit of a better better environment here in the States. But but still, I think automakers in general face some pretty stiff headwinds. I was just going to say, I mean, it, it seems like it's been sort of a rough go of it of late for the automakers. Um, what you know for someone who is looking at uh, whether it's a Ford or a GM or, or any sort of a, the big automakers, um, what's the thesis right now? If you're looking out over the next few years, what do you you know what what is the calculus that you're making as an investor where you say yes, I'm going to buy these you know any of these automakers and here's why. Well, if it's Ford or GM, it's a North American vehicle recovery, which I think has been going on. And for all the problems these guys have had in Europe and Asia, they are doing really well in North America, where pent-up demand is starting to come out. And the second is some sort of uh, reflection just on the valuation. I mean, you've got Ford, GM. These automakers are selling for mid-single-digit PE multiples. You know, the market is at 14 at large, so you're not paying a whole lot for these businesses. Now, they have a lot of operating leverage and a lot of debt in different forms. But if you're patient a long-term investor, I do think you could come away very well here. It is also interesting to see the flip side of that coin with companies like BMW that provide those luxury autos. And BMW continues to really do well. It's a company that, uh, that we cover over at Stock Advisor. And, and the numbers that they continue to, to, to show are just really amazing, considering, you know, it is a higher-priced automobile. Uh, but... It's a brand that resonates with a lot of consumers. It can really show you where people are spending. 
Shares of Eli Lilly up more than 3% after second quarter earnings came in better than expected and the company raised guidance for the full year. Uh, Charlie, we were talking earlier today. Uh, I was watching CNBC this morning. Uh, the CEO uh, from Eli Lilly was on. And this is a company that anytime you're looking at Big Pharma, you're looking at their drug pipeline. And they've got a bunch of drugs that are about to come off patent. And uh, they're, they're facing the, the generic drug challenge. When you look at Eli Lilly, how are they going to deal with that? That's a great question, Chris. And investors looking at drug companies need to keep one eye on the products they have on the market and one eye on what they have in uh, the in the labs and testing that are be their drugs of tomorrow. Uh, Eli Lilly, it's a company with $24 billion in annual sales. Uh, but as much as 40 to 50% of those sales could be going away in the next few years to do patent losses, uh, at which time, you know, generic competition comes in and erodes that rapidly. Uh, but on the flip side, they have 12 drugs in the latest stage of clinical testing, which would be phase three trials. Those are the new drugs closest to getting FDA approval. And one that's a little more interesting than the others is in the Alzheimer's market, which we talked about earlier this week. Yeah. There's only a handful of drugs uh, available to treat Alzheimer's disease. None of them work all that well. And with 5 million Americans having Alzheimer's, that's a number that's going to go up as the baby boomers age. This is a potential home run opportunity. You could get a 4 or $5 billion drug and their drug solanezumab. Uh, they're going to see phase three trial results in the next month or two. Um, he was asked about that on CNBC, specifically about uh, Alzheimer's disease, because Eli Lilly, as you mentioned, they've got a drug in trial, and he was asked point blank about the uh, story we discussed earlier in the week where Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Elan had a, an Alzheimer's disease drug that just, you know, failed completely in terms of, <laughs> right. its, in terms right. of its trial. He was very optimistic. Um, I, I actually thought he was overly optimistic because the results are going to be known in, in a matter of just a, a couple of months here. So I hope he's right when he's um, you know, talking his book about, right. about how well the, the drug is going to do. But it, it got me wondering, and I'm someone who owns shares of Pfizer, when we think about blockbuster drugs, it, it almost seems like that's no longer the reason to buy these big companies. I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, you could you could look at it in those terms. But it, and it seems like that's the case for an Elan, for a smaller drug company. But if you're looking at Pfizer or Lilly or Bristol-Myers Squibb or any of these big ones, is the era of blockbuster drugs for these big guys over? In a lot of ways, yes, Chris. You know, like cardiovascular disease uh, or treating high cholesterol. Uh, these are diseases that are large markets. They're cash cows for a long time, but the drugs are already effective. And those original drugs are now off patent and they're very cheap. And to get a new drug approved by the FDA is ridiculously expensive. And it's not going to happen. Uh, where these companies are going to make money in the future is by being innovative and going into niche indications, uh, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer, HIV. IV. The markets where the drugs are not effective, that's the opportunity going forward. And you want to see who's doing good work in those areas. You can always drop us an email, radio at fool.com. Uh, we got an email in response to our discussion yesterday <laughs> about the Olympics, where we were talking about the events that we would get rid of. I'm pretty sure we came down pretty hard on the equestrian events. Yeah. And, and you said pentathlon, right, Charlie? Modern pentathlon. Modern pentathlon. Uh, from Simeon Pilgrim, who identified himself as a New Zealander currently living in Illinois. Hi, guys. Love the show. 
steady with the sports cuts there. You named the two sports New Zealand does best at, <laughs> and therefore I veto your call. How about rhythmic gymnastics or synchronized swimming instead? If you insist on getting rid of equestrian events due to working with a horse, I vote in favor of dropping all team sports because they are just work with other things as well. Let's take the Olympics back to one-person events. That's, you know, that's a solid argument. But, uh, I do agree with his suggestions for what I, it's worth. I'm so, I didn't realize we were touching a nerve with, the, with our massive New Zealand audience. I, I stand by our point. <laughs> yeah. uh, more earnings. Panera's quarterly earnings rose 24%. Profit margins and same-store sales both growing, Jason Moser. And that's, uh, those are things you always like to see going up. Yes, those are the constants we always pay attention to when these restaurants uh, announce earnings. And you're right, system-wide comps were up for the store. 6%. Uh, average weekly sales are up. And you're right, they're continuing to maintain their margin picture by by being able to pass on just very small incremental price increases. And I think that's something that restaurants like Chipotle and Starbucks and Panera, uh, this fast, ca- fast casual segment in general, uh, these restaurants have a little bit more pricing power where that's concerned. Uh, I think one of the things that Panera does really well is they continue to keep the menu fresh. They keep it very seasonal. Uh, they change their offerings as, as the seasons come and go. And that's something I think that people tend to appreciate and remember. And it's also something I think that when you look at a Chipotle and compare it to a Panera, the one thing I, I like about Panera is that you can go in there and get uh, smaller offerings. You, you, you're not making that commitment to go in there and get a $10 burrito. Yep. You might go in there and just get a, a bagel and, and a cup of coffee or something, which is significantly less expensive. And uh, the focus, the, the two points of focus that I think we'll really want to key in on on the next few quarters is their My Panera Loyalty Program, which is is very good. I like it. I'm a member. I mean, you go in there and you just get these little surprises every now and then, a dollar off your coffee or a free bagel. And they've got about 11 million members in that, in that loyalty program now. And then they're really focusing on building out their catering. And uh, if Joe will remember at the Berkshire Hat Hathaway meeting earlier in Omaha, Panera actually catered the uh, Berkshire Hathaway meeting out there. So it was pretty neat to see that. I noticed that they broke out their same-store sales numbers. And I'm wondering if this is at all a point of concern for you, because the numbers I saw were that for the the company-owned locations, comps were up 7.1%. For the franchise locations, 4.8%. That seems like uh, a disparity that would be concerning. There is a disparity, and that's one I'd want to probably keep an eye on there, because with franchises, you typically don't have maybe the same focus as you would on a company-owned store. And Panera does have a number of franchises out there, and uh, that's what their model is dependent on, is building out some more of those franchises as well. So anytime you have a restaurant that does count on franchises as a part of their profitability, really need to make sure the quality is maintained, because if it's not, then that hurts the company's overall reputation. That that and that discrepancy is notable because usually a lot of restaurants that franchise want the independent entrepreneur who's hungry. You know, he's going to put his own money on the line, and they, and usually those stores perform better. To, so to see it perform worse at Panera is a troubling sign, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, like one of our former fools, a guy named Mike Kasperzak, who actually listens to the show, is part of a McDonald's franchisee family. And he'll tell you that, you know, from his experience that you see franchisees, because they're owner-operators, they have a lot more control over what's going on. They're more involved day-to-day. And it's a lot more entrepreneurial, whereas the company-owned McDonald's uh, locations are a little more bureaucratic and not as well-run. And to be honest, I think you see kind of, well, uh, ironically, an opposite dynamic at Starbucks, you know, where you go to some of the ones that are run by you know, uh, partners instead of Starbucks, and they're usually not as good. At least that's my experience. And 
and Starbucks ones are better. So I guess it just depends a little yeah, bit on the company. You're right, and, they, the, and the individual owners do have a lot of money on the on the line and more incentive to run a to run a good operation. And you do see every quarter it seems that Panera is buying back a few of those franchises here and there. So I wonder if that's not something they're recognizing and trying yeah. to mitigate a little bit as as time goes on. Uh, what do you think of the stock and? terms of its valuation right now? I think the stock is fairly priced. I don't think it's absurdly valued. I mean, we looked at something like Chipotle, or uh, yeah, Chipotle, which announced yeah. the other day, and that came down from a multiple of close to 60. Uh, Panera trades at around 30 times earnings today, which is uh, right in line with Starbucks and now closer in line with Chipotle. I think it's a little bit more reasonable considering there's still room for growth for the company. Shares of Netflix down huge this morning, as much as 25%. Second quarter earnings fell 91%, and slower subscriber growth is getting the lion's share of the blame. Charlie Travers, the quote from CEO Reed Hastings, we have enormous challenges ahead. I'm not surprised. Yeah. (laughs) Boy, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, and, And you are right. This slowing subscriber growth is getting much of the blame, but I think that blame is misplaced. And what we've seen with a lot of growth stocks this year is that the companies who sacrifice their earnings to invest in and grow the business, and a lot of times that's the right decision for the long run, uh, Netflix is doing that as well. And I think they're getting punished for it because Reed Hastings said in Q4 uh, they're going to make another international investment that's going to put them back in the red. And when you look at what they've done internationally, they've gone into Canada almost two years ago. They've been in the U.K. and Ireland and in Latin America. And they've gone in all these places and don't, frankly, have a lot to show for it in terms of profit. And so when they say they're going to lose money again in Q4 to open up yet another international market, I think a lot of investors are skeptical and think they're throwing good money after bad. Jason, they also um, made a comment about the Olympics and how the, the nation's, America's viewing of the Olympics over the next few weeks is going to sort of cut into their ability to grow subscribers. You. You seem skeptical about Be that. Be that as it may, I mean, I surfed back through a number of calls and letters to shareholders and never found mention one of the Olympics. So to use it now, I think, was awfully convenient, and I don't buy it. Um, it's another reason that I – it's just another reason why I'm concerned about about the leadership behind this company. And truthfully, if we look back just to July 3rd when Reed Hastings announced on Facebook of all places that they hit – what was it, 2 billion streaming one, hours? I think 1, 1, billion, billion, streaming 1 billion, hours. billion streaming hours. And so they were so proud of that, and yada, yada, I think he really raised expectations because the stock went from 70 to $82 in a matter of a day. So people were making the assumption that subscribers had to have grown. And then the announcement yesterday, we found out that they hadn't grown. So it was another bad decision on Reed Hastings' part. And I think he's making a lot of bad decisions lately, which concerns me as, a, as the leader of the company. But the problem is also that quarter in, quarter out, we get a little bit more of a of a visual as to what Netflix really is and what it's going to have to offer. And it's just going to be kind of that same old, not fresh, not new content. It's it's kind of like the rerun channel. And I think maybe that you know people are looking for a little something more. Joe, what do you think when you look at this company? Whether it's the company or the stock, it, I mean, when you when you think about Netflix and their business and how they can turn this around, what goes through your head? I have never seen a business go from riding so high in terms of respect for the company, for the brand, for management, the stock, to being each of those is probably down by whatever measure of eighty percent over the last year. Yeah. It's just been incredible. I mean, this is a company we were talking about in hushed tones. Like it was, you know, changing the world and now it's suddenly very grounded and you know, Reed Hastings has made so many mistakes over the last year or so. I mean the sixty percent price raise, the whole Quickster thing, 
international expansion is going very poorly, bad capital allocation decisions. I mean, there is a real business here, and they do deserve a lot of credit for being very forward-looking on the DVD side and on the streaming side. They still got a couple dozen million monthly paying members, so there's a lot of value, but they've made a lot of missteps. Yeah, I think there is a world where Netflix plays a role. And I, my argument with Netflix has always been that I just feel a profitability is, is somewhat limited because of, of what they are trying to do and just being the provider of just that sort of old stale content. Uh, but it was interesting to see in the call where Hastings had made mention of, a, of you know possibly partnering up with HBO at some point in the game to do something. And an hour later, HBO releases that you know press release that they said, no, no, that's not in the works. That's not something we intend to do. Uh, and considering that, that Reed Hastings had always referred to models like HBO as their prime competitors, it was it was just interesting to see that shake out. I think that what Netflix is going to find is that as they aspire to make more in-house pr- uh, production, uh, they're going to find it's very difficult to do. It's expensive. It's hard to put out real quality stuff. HBO has really done something well with, with the uh, shows that they put out. And I think that, that Netflix maybe sees that and is, is possibly a little bit env- envious of that right now. Yeah, I don't know why HBO would throw them a life preserver when HBO is rocking it so well. Yep. I mean, I would sooner see them go out and sell HBO Go in a similar Netflix way that people could just get that streaming online before they would partner with Netflix. So what is the thesis for buying shares of Netflix if you're looking at it today and saying, hey, it's down 25%, I'm going to buy it. What, what, is the, you know, what turns it around? So I, I think the strongest bull case is that each incremental streaming subscriber is massively profitable because they're paying a fixed cost for all of this content from the various uh, studios. And so if they can add another million, two million people paying them $8 a month, that just basically drops straight to the bottom line. I do say to give credit to Netflix, they have the best value proposition in the industry. Uh, they could be tagged fairly like Jason has about you know the dating of the content, but they are making an effort to bring good shows in. Uh, so I think there is a market for what they provide, and it's not one size fits all. You know, people can subscribe to Netflix, they can have cable, they can have Hulu, and I think that's their game. Is it a? I, I think that's reasonable. I think a less good example might be a takeout. Right now, you could take out. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, you could take out Netflix for about four billion dollars, which is pocket change to a Microsoft or a Facebook. Both of which have Reed Hastings on their boards of directors, by the way. And I think if you're Facebook. This would be a nice avenue for actually helping to monetize all that traffic that you've got. And if you're Microsoft, you are, as we've seen, desperately flailing about for growth engines, and they're throwing a lot of money at different projects. I think Microsoft could step in here and get some better distribution by building Netflix into Windows, different offerings. I mean, you know, maybe it's not a perfect strategic fit, but you know, neither was Yammer, neither was <laughs> Skype. So if you're going to throw $9 billion at Skype, throw $4 billion at Netflix. That's what I was going to say. $4 billion is not nearly enough money for Microsoft to waste. They'd at least pay 8 to $10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, since we're talking Netflix, let's close out with movie recommendations for our listeners. What do you got, Charlie? Uh, one of my favorite all-times movie is Pan's Labyrinth. It's a Guillermo del Toro movie. It's a nice fantasy uh, story, great setting. Is it? I, I think I've seen photos from that movie, and it looks frankly kind of freaky is it a scary movie is it a, is it a there's, horror there's film? some scary parts to it um but it's not necessarily i wouldn't call it a horror it's movie. not a horror movie no okay no. pan's labyrinth jason i was always a big fan of true romance that's a good flick that's the violent christian, christian slater yeah action-packed it's crazy joe harold and maude <laughs> classic love story that can be watched on netflix going going back to the 70s yeah 
Uh, I'm just going to go with the classic The Godfather, which I popped in last night. Got the uh, the Blu-ray for my birthday. And, Always a hit. Oh, my goodness. It's such a wonderful, wonderful movie. But, again, uh, you know, to your point about true romance, a little violent. So four guys here, nobody says, like, Phantom Menace. No. Crickets chirping. <laughs> it was I so liked well it. Written. It was good, but I was a little bit more of a, you know, episodes four, five, and six guy. Jason Moser, Joe Mager, Charlie Travis. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. I'll wait till you're done texting your wife. <laughs> I'm re- I mean, you're doing the read. I'm not doing anything during All the right. read. It's Wednesday, July 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery.